shortest verse in the Bible is found in the Gospel of John. John chapter 11 and verse 35, Jesus wept. Surrounded by the sorrow, the pain, the grief brought on by sin and its ultimate consequence, the death of his friend Lazarus, Jesus was momentarily overcome with grief. And the scripture says, Jesus wept. Funerals are fundamentally sad affairs, even for the believer who has hope in the resurrection of the dead and thus does not grieve like those without hope, he nonetheless grieves. There is that profound sense of loss that comes when one whom you love is torn from your arms. I will never, ever forget the first funeral that I ever officiated as a pastor. It was for a stillborn child. I stood at that grave with a tiny little coffin and tears just streaming down the faces of those people there. The anguish, particularly of a mother who so expected to come home from the hospital with a bundle of joy and was left with such a profound emptiness. I remember as I met with the family to minister to them in preparation for the funeral and even afterwards, the question repeatedly came up, where is our baby now? Where is our baby? And I assured them that God is merciful. God is gracious. God is kind. God is faithful. And that he could be trusted even in this moment of the greatest sorrow that a mother and dad could know. I also told them that their baby was in heaven with God. But in the years since that time, I have often wondered, was I correct in that? In my desire to comfort them, did I say that which is true about God? I've wondered off and on about the honesty and truthfulness of that statement. Can we really know? Can we really know what happens to babies who die? Each year in this country, according to statistics, somewhere between one in four and others say one in three pregnancies end in miscarriage. You add to that the million plus abortions that occur in just this nation alone every year and you know that the death of the, in, of the infant is no academic matter. It is not just something for seminary students to bat around late at night over a cup of coffee. The death of a baby is an emotionally painful, grief-ridden, and in the cases of some, 
source of permanent sorrow, particularly for a mother. So as we have been examining here these last weeks, various questions that arise out of our understanding of the doctrine of election from Romans chapter 9, it was imperative that we come to this final question. In preparation for this, I, um, I re-examined this whole issue. And I did this because I needed to determine for myself, if for no one else, the answer to that question. What happens to babies who die? I want to share with you this morning the results of that study. I want to share with you five reasons why I believe all who die in infancy go to be with God. And it's my hope that through this study, you will both receive and give comfort to those who have lost a child. Many of whom are perhaps sitting right out here right now. So as we begin together, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1132. I want to approach this study this morning by building a building. The way you go about building a building is that you lay a foundation and you do so stone upon stone. Biblically speaking, precept upon precept. And that's what I want to do with you this morning. There is no one single verse anywhere in the Bible that directly answers this question. But that doesn't mean that the Word of God is silent with regard to this and that we cannot know. I used to be actually of that opinion that you can't be sure. So this is a change for me. Even my own family said, Dad, you've, you've changed your mind here. And I said, yeah, I have. I have changed my mind. So as we work through this together, let's accumulate these reasons. So if I can just ask you to withhold your final judgment until I have laid before you the reasons why I am now so firmly persuaded that all who die in infancy go to be with the Lord. I want to begin here with Romans chapter 8, verse 30, and I just want to refresh your memory very quickly with regard to God's work of election. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, Paul says, that whom God predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, when we preach through this section of Paul's epistle, we call this the golden chain of redemption. The golden chain of redemption. And it speaks of God's work of redemption. God's work whereby he predestines before the foundation of the world all those whom he will save, and then he ensures that his choice of that person is actualized in space and time. 
Look again at the verse. Those whom He has predestined, He also glorifies. That is, there are no missing links in the chain. God is the one who sees it through to its ultimate and glorious fruition. I believe that Scripture indicates that God includes among His elect all children who die as babies. I believe that to be true. There is nothing illogical about that statement. Just as God chooses all unfallen angels as a class and elects them that way, just as God reprobates all fallen angels as a class, so I believe He has chosen and predestined unto salvation all children who die as babies, as a class. Now, the fact that God does not elect all adult humans as a class does not mean that He cannot elect all babies who die in infancy as a class. You understand what I'm saying? There is nothing illogical here at all about the statement that God elects all who die in infancy as a class. So let me now accumulate for you the reasons why I believe that statement is true. I've given you a handout. All five reasons are there for you. Many of the Scripture references that we will look at are listed there for you as well. So let's begin with reason number one. The reason number one that I believe that all babies who die go to be with God, that is, are the elect of God, is because, number one, salvation is from God, not man. Salvation is from God, not man. Now, let me review some things for you. And presumably these are things that you all know, and I'm just merely refreshing you on them. First, all children are conceived and born as sinners. Psalm 51, verse 5, In sin did my mother conceive me. All children are conceived and born as sinners. They are guilty of participating in Adam's original sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is what theologians call original sin. All humanity participated in some way in Adam's original sin, and thus they are corrupt at conception. We explained that in excruciating detail when we were working through Romans chapter 5. If you are not there for that, I commend you to our website where you can download the appropriate sermons and trace the argument yourself. So all infants conceived in sin, born as sinners, participating in Adam's original sin and thus in need of salvation. We are not saying that children are innocent. We are saying that they are, in fact, reprobate. They are defiled. They are corrupt. They are totally depraved. And they are in desperate need of salvation. The reality, by the way, of this truth is demonstrated very simply in the fact that infants die 
Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Adam died and in him we spiritually died and will physically die and infants die too. They are therefore possessed of that fallen nature. Because all mankind is ruined by sin, God must extend his grace or none would be saved. For it is by grace you are saved. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. These are very simple things that you all know. Furthermore, the basis of salvation is Christ's sacrificial substitutionary death. At the moment of salvation, Christ's death atones or pays for a person's original sin. That is the guilt that he had in Adam as well as all of that person's sinful thoughts, choices and deeds, past, present and future. The atonement of Jesus Christ pays for, expiates all sin, original and sin of volition. Be reminded, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. It is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ that purchases the salvation of any and all who will ever be saved. But the question is, isn't faith necessary to be saved? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Isn't it necessary to have faith to be saved? Beloved, we are not saved by faith. We are not saved by faith. We are saved by what? Grace. We are saved by grace. The grace of God who reckons our sin against Christ and His righteousness to our account. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He made Him, that is Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We are saved by grace. Now, the Bible speaks about faith. It is by grace through faith. The Bible speaks of a faith-based relationship with the God of the universe everywhere, and we are not denying that at all. For you and I, sitting here this morning, there is no other means by which we will be saved but to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It is... By grace through faith. 
But the verses that speak about the necessity of faith, I'm going to contend with you this morning, are written to those who are capable of exercising faith. They mandate faith, they, but they are written to those who are capable of exercising the faith that they call for. Faith is a gift. Faith itself is a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is what? A gift of God. Faith is a gift, and it is a gift that springs from regeneration, which is the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. We are born again and then believe. We are born again and then believe. We are regenerate and then we by faith embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 3 and verse 3. Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, unless one is born again, that is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verses 5 and 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. It is a work of the spirit of God. That, by the way, was Nicodemus's whole problem. Then Jesus said, and you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand that. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God to regenerate the elect by applying Christ's atonement to them. For those who can believe, faith follows. Faith follows. In essence, dying infants are saved exactly the same way as adults. Exactly the same way. The Father elects, the Son atones, the Holy Spirit regenerates. It is the exact same process. By the way, for those who believe that God elects on the basis of foreseen faith somehow, that He looks down the corridors of time, sees who will believe, and then elects them unto salvation. For one to hold that position, they would have to, at least to be consistent with themselves, say that all infants who die before the ability to exercise faith are damned, for there would be no faith to foresee. But we know that's not true. God does not elect on the basis of foreseen faith. God elects on the basis of his own secret choice. So reason number one, salvation is from God, not man. Reason number two, we are saved by grace, but damned by works. We are saved by grace, but damned by works. Turn all the way to the back of your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1240. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. This is John's vision and description of the great white throne judgment. That is, it is the judgment of the wicked dead. John says, beginning in verse 11, And I saw a great white throne. And him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. Look at it. According to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, look at it, according to their deeds. According to their deeds. At the great white throne, the judgment of unredeemed humanity is on the basis of their life work. It is their deeds. It is how they live their life is the basis under which they will be condemned. God's judgment is always based upon a person's deeds. Always. Romans chapter 2. You can turn there if you like. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Paul writes, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. Drop down to verse eight to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. Unbelief, the unbeliever, the wicked, are judged according to what they do. Even unbelief itself, by the way, is a manifestation of rebellion and disobedience. Acts chapter 17, Paul says to the, um, the philosophers in Athens, he said, God is now commanding all men everywhere to repent. The gospel includes not only an invitation, but a command to believe. John chapter 3, verse 36, speaks about those who will not see life because they do not obey the gospel. There is an element in the gospel of, of obedience, and that is obedience in the sense of submission to the truth of the gospel. Furthermore, when the scripture describes the inhabitants of hell... It does so with a list of sins and abominations that they have committed. Whenever the scripture lists those who are there in the lake of fire, it does so by speaking about those sins, those abominations which they have committed. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know? That the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. That is one of many sample passages. When it speaks about the damned, it speaks of them. The Bible speaks of them in terms of their sin and their abominations. That is those things that they have done. So we are saved by grace, but damned by works. Saved by grace, damned by works. Third reason. Reason three. The kingdom of heaven belongs to infants. 
The kingdom of heaven belongs to infants. Now, I've structured this for you, as you can see, with three sub-arguments or three sub-points underneath this. The first is in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, page 977. In a comparison of that passage, Matthew 18, 1 to 6, with Matthew 19, verses 13 to 15. So we're going to just compare two passages. And the blessing that Jesus gives to children and to babies. The blessing of Jesus upon children and upon babies. And as we compare these two accounts of Matthew 18, 1 to 6, Matthew 19, 13 to 15, that is the Jesus blessing of children on one occasion and babies on another, we will see an important difference between the two. Important difference. Children are capable of believing and in Matthew 18 are held up as the model of humble dependence. Whereas in Matthew 19, the kingdom of heaven is said to belong to babies, belong to babies. That is that they are in a state compatible with heavenly citizenship. They're in a state compatible with heavenly citizenship. Now, let me just show it to you here in the text. Matthew 18, one to six. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the child to himself and set him before them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, let's observe a couple things from this passage. First, Jesus calls the child to himself. He calls the child to himself. That is that the child is old enough to understand and respond to their name. By the way, the word Matthew uses here is paideon. It's a, just a general Greek word that means children. It's like the English word children. It doesn't have any reference to age. It doesn't speak of age. So we notice that Jesus calls the child and the child's old enough, verse 2, to hear their name and respond to it and come. Secondly, we noticed in verse 6 that the child believes in Christ. You see it? One of these little ones who believe in me. This child is capable of expressing faith in Jesus Christ. And beyond that, Jesus warns severely against those who would lead this little believer astray. And so clearly Jesus is talking here about a child who is old enough to, by faith, embrace Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, based on the model of this child's life, that this teaches us something about the kingdom of heaven. And what it teaches us is, is that a humble dependence upon him, a childlike humility and dependence, is what characterizes those who inhabit the kingdom of God. That was the lesson. Now, let's go over to chapter 19, verses 13 to 15, and notice something different. Page 979, if you're using a pew Bible. Verse 13, Then some children were brought to him, so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. 
And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Notice first that the children are brought to him. They are brought to him. He doesn't call them to him. They are brought. Secondly, Matthew uses the same Greek word here for children. Pideon. But in the parallel account in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 18, verse 15, you can either look if you'd like or Check it on your own later. Luke chapter 18, verse 15. Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke uses a different Greek word for the same event. Brephos. Which is translated babies or infants. And that's what that word means. So when Luke, the doctor, known for more precise language, recounts this event... He says that those who are being brought are babies. They are babies. And so here in Matthew 19, then verse 13, we could, by bringing these two accounts together, by harmonizing them, we could very clearly say, then some babies were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them, that is, rebuked the parents who were bringing them. But Jesus said, let the babies alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God belongs to such as babies. That is, those who are in a state compatible to heavenly citizenship. Babies. Babies. Second sub-point. The kingdom of heaven belongs to infants. For this, we need to turn back to the Old Testament, to a very well-known account to most of you, the story of David's two sons. So go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, page 327 in your pew Bible. The story of David's two sons. Second Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba. We're all quite familiar with it. The sin that produces a child. Go over to chapter 12 and in verse 13. After an extended period of time, nine months, of David trying to conceal this sin, resorting even to murder in order to conceal it, it is finally brought into the light of day by the prophet Nathan. And so when Nathan confronts David, David there 
falls on his face, as it were, and repents of his great sin. And he makes the following confession. Verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do harm to himself? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he had requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live, but now that he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, some would interpret this passage to say that David knows only that the child is going to the grave. The child has gone to the grave. But I would ask, in what way does that comfort a father's heart? What comfort would that bring to a father's heart? Actually, what I would suggest to you is that what comforts David, what enables him to go into the house of the Lord and to worship, to wash his face, to change his clothes, to sit down, to eat, to have a complete change in his life, is that he is comforted with the knowledge that he will be reunited with his child. He will be reunited with the child. Psalm chapter 23, verse 6, David said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David was absolutely sure of where he was going to be. And so when he says that the child cannot come to me, but I will go to the child. And he says in Psalm 23, 6, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think the only reasonable understanding is that David is saying that the child is there waiting for me. just doesn't make sense that the child's in the grave and that's all and that I'm going to the grave too someday and that comforts my heart? I don't think so. Furthermore, when you turn to the right to chapter 18, page 338, chapter 18 and verse 31, we see David's response to the death of another son. The wicked son, Absalom. Notice the difference in the response of David to the death of Absalom than to the death of his infant son. 
Verse 31, and behold, the Cushite arrived and the Cushite said, let my Lord, the king, receive good news. For the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. Then the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? That is the leader of the rebellion. And the Cushite answered, let the enemies of my Lord, the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. The king was deeply moved and he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept and And thus he said as he walked, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The difference. There is no no hope of victory here. There is only the anguish of defeat. There's only the knowledge, the sure and certain knowledge that his son will not dwell in the house of the Lord while David will be reunited with him, but that this wicked son will be forever separated from the Lord. The reaction is so dramatic between these two. Why? It's because they have different destinations. One is going to be with the Lord. That is the infant who died. The other will be eternally separated from his Creator. Third, the kingdom of heaven belongs to infants because infants belong to God. Infants belong to God. Ezekiel chapter 16. Page 839. Ezekiel chapter 16. Verses 20 and 21. The prophet Ezekiel is speaking in the name of the Lord. And he is speaking judgment upon the apostate nation of Judah. They had deteriorated spiritually and socially to the point where they were actually now engaging in the detestable practice of sacrificing their own live children to the god Molech. And so God rebukes them. Verse 20. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me, and you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. That is, they burned their children. God rebukes them. He rebukes them. And notice, he says, you slaughtered my children. You slaughtered my children. The implication is that these children had been abandoned by their parents, but they had not been abandoned by God. They had not been abandoned by God. They belonged to Him. Salvation is from God, not man. We are saved by grace, but damned by works. The kingdom of heaven belongs to infants. Fourth, Heaven contains representatives of all people groups. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, page 1228. Very simple. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. The scene is the throne room of heaven. Four living creatures, which are angels, the 24 elders, which I believe are the church, represent the church, are here praying, praising God. Verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. 
For you were slain and have purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have purchased people from every tribe, tongue, people and nation. How could heaven contain people from all people groups? How is it possible that it contains people from all people groups? Even those that have never heard the gospel and have died out. I would suggest to you the answer to that is that, a, that there were those infants in those diverse and unknown people groups who died and went to the presence of the Lord. And thus there are indeed in heaven people from all tribes, tongues, people, and nations. Reason number five. Infants are not morally responsible. Infants are not morally responsible. Now you're going to have to think with me on this one. The age of accountability. The age of accountability. Many of you are familiar with that concept. Let me define it for you. In fact, I've done so in your handout. I just read it. The age of accountability. Now think. The age of accountability is the chronological stage in a person's life when they become responsible for their conduct before God. It is not based upon a fixed age, but depends on the growth of moral consciousness. It is that Time in every individual's life when based on their growth of moral consciousness that they become individually responsible to their creator. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 39. God speaking through Moses says, Moreover, your little ones who you said would become a prey and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter there and I will give it to them and they shall possess it. This is Deuteronomy. This is the second giving of the law. This is the speaking to the people of Israel, who uh, those that have survived the wilderness and are about to enter into the promised land. And they were concerned that their children would, would die there in the land. And God says to them that their children, even those who don't know good and evil, shall enter into the land. The morally unaware, he says, get to go into the land. Now, the indicators in the Bible of reaching the age of accountability or the age when one has the ability to discern right and wrong are based upon a general understanding of good and evil. The ability of an individual to understand or discern right and wrong is based on their general understanding of good and evil. Young children are capable of anger, they're capable of stealing, they're capable of lying, and they're capable of bashing each other over the head. All you need to do is visit our nursery to see that. But what they do not have, what they are not capable of, is having a grasp of the reality that they have consciously chosen to disobey God. James chapter 4, verse 17, Therefore the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Societal pressure 
parental conditioning of the young may produce certain behaviors. That is, as a parent, you can so structure your home that you can get your children to, to not do something in order to avoid certain consequences. You can also to get them to do something in the seeking of praise. They like to be told by you, good job. You can even get them to imitate adult behaviors, such as singing Bible songs, praying, and reading their Bible. One of my grandchildren likes me when I read a Bible story to her, which has pictures. She wants me to point to the picture of God. Grampy, which one's God? Well, there's a problem, isn't there? There are no pictures of God, but she doesn't know that. Oh, I gave part of it away, didn't I? Can she sing Bible songs? Yes. Does she pray? Yes. Does she do things in order to seek the praise of her parents? Yes. Does she avoid certain behaviors because of the consequences that they bring upon her little behind? Yes. But that is all conditioning behavior at this point. She does not seek virtue because she knows it is virtuous and that it represents God. These behaviors do not necessarily flow from the heart that knows and desires God. Now, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, it tells us that at some point in time... All people know or come to know the one true God. They know him and they suppress that as they hold down that knowledge. And as a result, they become darkened, intellectually darkened, spiritually darkened, sexually darkened and socially darkened. And you can read that list of the deep, dark descent of man. So all people at some point become accountable to God. Now, are there any biblical indicators of this idea of moral awareness? Are there any biblical indicators of moral awareness? Yes, there are. Probably the most famous is in Jonah, chapter 4. So, page 923. Jonah comes right before Micah. The prophet Jonah. Jonah chapter 4. You know the story of Jonah. God told him to go to Nineveh and preach to them. He went the other way. He had no interest in preaching to the people of Nineveh. God persuaded him that he should change his mind and go to Nineveh, and so he does. He arrives at Nineveh. He marches through the great city of Nineveh, and he proclaims that judgment and destruction is coming unless they repent, and they repent. After he proclaims the destruction, he goes up on the hill overlooking the city to sit there and watch their undoing. But God has mercy upon the great city of Nineveh. And Jonah's not too happy about that. But God speaks to him here in verse 11. Actually, in verse 10, we pick it up there. God made a plant to grow over and shade Jonah from the sun. And the plant dies and and Jonah's more upset over the death of the plant than he is over the 
destruction of the nation or of the people in Nineveh. God says, verse 10, then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. So let's think about this for a minute. Animals are not morally aware. Can we safely assert that? The animals are not morally aware. Now, when we speak about people not knowing their left hand from their right hand, that characterizes early childhood. That's what characterizes early childhood, typically up around the age of three or so. But if you do a little background work, and this is where it got interesting for me, is that based on the, ancient, or the estimates of ancient Nineveh, they estimated the population at about 600,000 people in greater Nineveh. So if that's a true estimate of the population, then 120,000 persons who are age three and below don't know their left hand from their right hand would be about 20% of the population. That seems like an incredibly large percentage of the city's population to be at that small an age. So perhaps the reference to left and right hand in the inability to determine it is not a reference necessarily to intellectual ability. That is the ability to determine an abstract concept like left and right, or as my grandkids go, you know, left and right or whatever. So maybe it's not speaking of just their intellectual growth and the ability to, to handle abstract contact or, or concepts, but maybe it's speaking about something deeper. There is an indication throughout the scripture that the reference to the left and to the right hand is actually a reference to good and evil. It's actually a reference to good and evil. Good being symbolized by the right hand, evil being symbolized by the left hand. For example, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 2. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Matthew chapter 25, verse 33. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So there seems to be, and actually... Secular history sort of proves this out, the idea that the left stands in for evil and the right for good. And so perhaps what is being spoken of here in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 11, when he says 120,000 persons who don't know their left and the right, is he speaking about 120,000 persons who are not morally aware of the difference between good and evil. That would broaden and widen the population base to include not only just those small children, but perhaps the mentally incompetent as well. So it seems to reconcile, at least in my mind, the number a little better. Beyond that, just biblical references to moral awareness. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 16, don't turn there. But it speaks of a young boy and it says that this prophecy will come true before the young boy knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Again, it's speaking about a young age. So put together, salvation is from God, not man. We are saved by grace, but damned by works. The kingdom of heaven belongs to infants. Heaven contains representatives of all people groups, and infants are not morally responsible. When I put that all together, in my mind, it convinces me that those who die before they have become morally accountable to God are his elect 
and enter into immediate, immediately into the presence of God. That's a message of comfort and hope, isn't it? That's a message of comfort and hope, particularly to those who have suffered the loss of a child. If you have, through miscarriage, or perhaps even through abortion, there is an emptiness in your heart, empty arms, then it is my prayer that this trek through the Scriptures would bring comfort to your soul. That if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are by faith rightly related to Him, you will see that child again. You will see that child again. Conversely, if you have reached the age of moral awareness, if you are sitting here this morning and you do know the difference between right and wrong and good and evil, you are aware of your Creator and what He requires of you, then you are accountable to God. You are accountable to God. Your only hope, your only hope is to flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. Come to the cross. Turn from your sin and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says if you will do that by faith, you will be saved. Ron's going to come and lead us in singing here in just a minute. And as he's doing that, we have a cross over there that's normally lighted. In this case, I'll ask you to come to the unlighted cross. <laughs> and there'll be somebody there to meet you, to talk to you, open the Bible with you, minister to you, and show you how you can for sure Know the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank You for the comfort of the Word of God. Comfort upon our souls in such a very practical area of life. And I pray, our Father, that You would bring great comfort this morning to those who have lost a child. Perhaps some of these truths are, are new to their ears and perhaps these are things they believed all along, in which case may your spirit just reinforce that which they already believed. Reminding them of who you are. You are a great and glorious God, kind and merciful and gracious. You are the God who saves. And so our Father, minister to our hearts that great comfort this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.